Boom, family, check it out. Protector Symposium 5.0. This is, we're continuing our series where I'm giving you guys a look into the Protector Symposium. What kind of things uh, we're talking about at these symposiums. Uh, day one is all in the auditorium. We all um, get together. We get presentations from usually about seven different instructors um, on various topics, various subjects. And it's just, it's awesome, man. And it's, it's just one big family. It's informative. Uh, this last Protector Symposium was amongst my favorites. Uh, you'll see the lineup. It's absolutely amazing. You'll learn a lot of different skills through this episode, but I put these out so you guys can see what it's like to come to a Protector Symposium. The Protector Symposium is a once in a lifetime training opportunity. Every single one is different. We go Friday in the auditorium, we go Saturday, Sunday out in the field and we learn hands-on from these instructors. So this is another amazing one. Uh, this is a great episode to watch on YouTube. If you guys are listening to it, you'll get a lot out of it, but um, from the different instructors in this symposium. But if you can watch it on YouTube, it'll be better. Um, and then also remember, we have the full Protector Symposium library. You can go to protectornation.com, join the social media platform. It's the only and first platform for protectors, man. It's amazing. Um, learn who's around. Um, and then uh, download the full library of all the Protector Symposium. It's more content than you think it is. All instructional. And then get your ticket for the upcoming Protector Symposium 6.0 Apocalypse. I find it entertaining. You know, people sometimes are like, oh, you're never going to need these skills. 6.0 Apocalypse is literally designed for what we're dealing with in the world today. Today, Hawaii just burned down. To, like, in the, like, currently, Hawaii just burned down. Uh, Oregon's on fire. Washington State is on fire. Canada's on fire. I'm in California right now where they're giving us, like, uh, tsunami and flooding alerts right now, telling us that there's a huge storm coming in. Needing to understand how to deal with a black swan event um, an apocalyptic type natural disaster. We haven't even gotten into pandemics or whatever else they have planned for us. You need to know how to do the skills we're gonna be talking about at the Protector Symposium 6.0. It is geared towards, what if these? What if you have to leave your house with your family right now? Is everything packed up? Do you know how to bug out? Do you know how to bug in? What do you have in your house to survive off of? These are the things we're gonna tackle at Protector Symposium 6.0. I think it's funny, civilians are always like, oh, you don't need all those skills, you know, because life has been so good, I don't think I need. Dude, every single person that just got their house burned to the ground in Hawaii thought the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Everyone in, you don't think these things are gonna happen. You don't plan to get into a car accident, but you get insurance, right? So this is the reality we live in. We haven't even got to the social unrest uh, that'll result from either of political candidates winning the next presidential election that'll happen in 2024. There's so many things on the horizon. So don't, so be prudent. Come and get the training from some of the best in the world. Go to protectorsymposium.com. Get your ticket. At least get a digital ticket. Come and learn these skills. We want to make the world a safer place by helping good people be willing, capable, and prepared. I love you guys. Man of peace, enjoy the episode. I think this is definitely something that's become a passion of my life. It's something that began as, um, you know, a way to try to contribute from who and what I am. You know, I've never been that amazing, you know. I've never been that, like, awesome at anything. The only thing I knew was that I was a protector, right? So, growing up, I always would ask, you know, my heavenly father, How's this thing going? Um, for a mission, you know, for a purpose. Uh, I never was the fastest guy. I never was the tallest guy. I'm not a Navy SEAL. 
I'm not Delta Force. So I always was kind of like, Father, you know, how can I contribute from who and what I am? Never been that amazing. And he's always been faithful to give me a mission, first the Marine Corps, and then I got pulled into executive protection by the grace of God. That's a whole long story, a lot of podcasts about that. Um, you know, but then this kind of turned into this other piece of like, the internet happens and it's like, how can I contribute? You know, and it's, it's really just, I've got to give value. And what wins on this planet? The strongest force. That's the end. That's what this game's really about. And that's what the Protector Nation is really about. Yo, let's get into the slides, gents. That's what the Protector Nation's really about, is the mission of making the world a safer place by helping good people to become more dangerous. The reality is, today, right now, uh, rape is happening while I'm speaking to you, okay? People are being victimized while I'm speaking to you. People are in other countries begging for help and being victimized while we're having these conversations. And maybe, but angels generally aren't landing when there's some active shooter in our schools doing what they do. You know, there's no supernatural anything. You know what happens? The strongest and most formidable humans dominate the day. And if that's an evil human, then that person dominates until formidable, good humans actually show up, right? So that's what the mission is here. That's what the protector nation is about. We're the nation of protectors all over the world that are willing to put the work in to be able to protect the light and the innocence left on our planet. Now this is protect, whoa. <laughs> all right, let's go back to the, the, the first slide here. All right, now this is Protector Symposium 5.0. This is our fifth iteration of what it is we're doing. These gentlemen, these elite instructors, you know, it's such an honor to be able to join forces with these guys. Every single time one of them says yes, I play it cool, but I'm so excited inside, right? Because they're teaching guys at the top, the tip of the spear, and now we get to get access to that instruction, right? So what's gonna happen over the course of this next weekend is we're gonna all submit to learning, submit to training, and this is the dojo. This is where we go to be able to uh, be exposed together. This is where we go to be, to be uh, vulnerable together. I will submit to instruction with all of you. One or two of you might choke me out. It's gonna go down, you know what I'm saying? But this is what it's about. This brand's never been about being the, the, the best, most tactical, you know, ninja, uh, Jedi guy. My brand's been about a student on a journey to be the best warrior possible to stand against evil. And so, when every one of these guys that I've learned from, that I've followed, that, I, that, that have impacted my tactical journey, joined to come and kick it with us. It is one of the greatest honors that they're willing to uh, bring in their brand DNA with the Protector Nation. So I wanna first give them a hand clap. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. So welcome, and I know now it's a tough hour after lunch. I'm going to do my best pass you some information. First of all, I want to tell you who I am, but not talking about me. Four minutes an hour, or more than enough, because it's like 10% of the time, the total time I have at my disposal to communicate with you. So I don't want to waste your 
your time talking about who I am, because you didn't pay for that. You paid to receive information. I'm a professional student, that's for sure. Part-time instructor. What I'm going to do with you in the next few minutes, I will try to open a window in your mind. This is the maximum I can do. Vehicle tactics in one hour? <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm not a wizard. Have you ever thought for real about what you're doing and how you're doing? What are you looking for in terms of training? What your needs are for real? Be honest with yourself. I was behind you. <coughs> All morning, watching you. I tell you a little story, very short, so you can get the message. I was invited in a super huge training. First time that a civilian was authorized to enter in that kind of training. So, tier one unit, a lot of, we were three sessions, I was in charge for one session, was vehicle, asymmetric uh, uh, vehicle tactics, dynamics and uh, static. And we were three sessions, we were somewhere, uh, we were good guys from different countries, including the United States. And day one was, I was so under pressure because, you know, first time I was there and, whew, 50 people that were looking at me and I had the a sniper team that was the smaller one was like this and I was like <laughs> it was like you know <laughs> the key that and everybody was watching me and said, come on what do you want to tell us the commander was there and after I presented myself you know what I told them I told them guys you are super cool. You are super keep. You have everything. You have MVG, helmet, thousands and thousands of years of equipment. But you miss the main, the main two tools for this kind of job. And everybody starts to watch it. What's it talking about? Paper and pen. Paper and pen are the only two tools that you need in training, in this kind of training. You won't be able to remember all the information that we would provide you. And you pay for that. So, do you think it's smart to follow, to, to pay for something and then to forget that because you didn't take notes? You have to take notes. Shooting range. The shooting range is an environment that is built exactly to allow people to use fire safely, right? Is this correct? Cool. But it's a controlled environment. Why is a controlled environment? It's a controlled environment because you have to follow anyway rules, safety rules. Because if you the proper use of a firearm, if you don't respect the safety rules inside the shooting range, you could be a danger anyway if you are inside a shooting range for yourself or for other people. Is this correct? Makes sense? Perfect. Great. So it's a controlled environment that is built to use of firearms and for everybody. Civilians, law enforcement, military, special forces, security, 
everyone trained with the firearms normally train inside a facility, a shooting range that is built for exactly for that task. Make sense? Cool. Someone of you used to compete? Sport shooting? No one here? You? Ah, great. So, where do you train normally? Yeah. Here in Arizona, the National Forest. Yeah, that's shooting range, right? Shooting range, yeah. There's a couple of shooting range. Oh, okay, perfect. Where do you where uh, where do you do competition? Competition at those same ranges. Okay, so your training environment. Pay attention. Your training environment is the shooting range, right? Yes. For shooting. Organized, organized and unorganized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I'm mainly when you use firearms, live fire shooting range. It's your training environment. It doesn't matter if you do the right fire at home, but your main environment is for live fire is a shooting range. When you apply for competition, when you do competition, you do competition inside a shooting range. So your applicative environment is exactly the same as the training environment. Make sense? So this is called training application loop. Follow me. So what happened? What's your name? Mark, Italian name. Uh, Mark, when you train on a shooting range, you train to improve your skill, right? Yeah, your skills in terms of shooting, on details, whatever. And you do it because you have a goal: win competitions, right? Even if it's an open, okay? Yeah. Now we are not talking about the defensive aspect, we are talking about competitive aspect. If you compete, I hope that you compete to win, you don't compete to arrive last, right? We always need to, to have the chance to, to increase our, we have to dream high, dream big. So when you do, when you train yourself, and then you apply, and then you find some problem during competitions, you go back in training, researching for a solution to solve that, Problem you find during competition, right? This is the loop. And then back in application, see if the new solution works or not. Make sense? Great. Now let's take everyone else that carry a firearm as a tool in his job law enforcement, military, or anyone here that has a license to carry a firearm for defense. Where we train? Inside a shooting range, right? Exactly in the same environment. So, what we have in common is the training environment because our training environment is the same, it's shooting range. Where do we apply? In a real environment. And the real environment, what has in common with a shooting range? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Cool. We train in, an, in a kind of environment that we apply in another kind of environment. Do you ever talk about this? And I tell you which are some of the main parameters that you have to be focusing on instead of which is better, Glock or Beretta. The shooting range is 2D environment. The real environment is 3D environment. That makes a lot of difference. The shooting range is flat. Normally, except in Malta, where they have uphill shooting range and episodes, something like that. But it's flat. The real environment, look here. 
The ballistic environment inside a shooting range is homogeneous. More or less, 98%. On the real environment, the ballistic environment around you is heterogeneous. In 10 yards, we can have multiple ballistic environments. I could have walls, cars, uh, shops, crowd. These change completely the priorities. It's not the same when you have an homogeneous environment. The shooting range, how cool it is, is a kind of environment that is very, provide you very low stimulus. When you are in the shooting range, the only sound you heard, bang, or someone voice, I'm talking with you, or beep, the sound of the time. Right? And what are you looking for? Which are the danger in terms of, that you can have around you, about your aroundness? No. When you are in a real environment, your brain has to detect tons of different noises from different positions, different distances from you. Has to detect different visual input. Do you know that we acquire the environment 70% by our eyes? But we continue to measure the shooting standard by our auditory input. On the shooting range, Whatever you're going to do, even the most ninja tactics you're going to apply, you're going to shoot for first, you're going to move for first, you're going to be the only one who's going to shoot. Yeah, for sure, that's why it's not a gunfight. Those are the advantages that you don't have in real life. Plus, everything you're going to shoot is pre-known. Your target is pre-known. Your input, reactive input, are pre-known. Is always the same. Do you know how long is that lens? 0.20. So long. And you have the presumption that when you put yourself in front of a target, doesn't matter the distance, five yards, eight yards from the target, and then you start to react. Beep, bam, beep, bam. That's my reaction time. You think it? No way. That's mechanical. That is only the mechanics. That is only the time that required to your body to complete specific procedures, specific action, group of actions, specific motor patterns that you have built by reps. Because people talk about muscle memory. Uh, my muscle memory. Guys, I don't want to crush a dream, but muscles, they have no memory. <laughs> Yes, here we can tell you whatever we want. The problem is you, not an us. No one of us is going to knock to your door. Hey, come on, it's time to train. Guys, I've trained a lot of people and it's always been a privilege. I enjoy empowering those who are on the side of good in this world. Uh, but that's not what I'm going to do today. I'm going to have a talk with you like I've never given in my life. I'm going to talk about the why we are protectors. How many of you in this room identify yourself for whatever reason as a protector? Let me just see your hands. Okay, good. So I wrote down the definition to protect. It's a transitive verb. It means to keep from being damaged, attacked, stolen, or injured, to guard, 
and synonym is to defend. Alternate definition is to keep from being subjected to difficulty or unpleasantness. My God, I don't think any of you will probably ever be subjected to unpleasantness, but just in case you are, <laughs> you're going to get some great training here. But that's what a, that's what a protector is. We shield people. We safeguard people from harm in a lot of different ways. First responders on the medical side, protection side, law enforcement, military, all protectors. Moms, we're crying out loud. When I see the attempted normalization of every manner of child harm now, I'm wondering where the mama bears are like they were when I was small. You get between a, an actual bear mom and her cubs and find out what happens. We all understand what's going to happen. You reach into a bear den to grab one of her cubs, you're going to draw back a bloody nub, if anything at all. She may just yank you in there and eat you right there. Being a protector, a protector is about having empathy for others. We see an entire globe now, increasingly, of people who are self-centered, they're all about them. They're callous. They don't care about others. I'm not just talking about hardcore crime networks like the Mexican drug cartels. I'm talking about politicians. I'm talking about average citizens. Walk right over somebody that's injured. Drive right around a, a mother that's stranded with her vehicle with a, with a baby. Can't wait for her to get out of their way. What's happening to our society? What's happening to our culture? We're devolving. We're losing what it means to be human. And the why, it's good to reach down and help those in need and bring them up. Protect those that are in harm's way. We're losing that. So there's tremendous opportunity now for all of you guys to do what you do and make an impact. Beautiful thing, I celebrate it. Empathy for others. To be a protector is a selfless act and decision. Why don't more make it? I see so many people with so many skills that our government spent millions and millions of dollars to train. They're some of the most deadly, some of the most capable men on the face of planet Earth. And I watch what they do when they get out, when they retire, when they go into their own life. And it seems like so many are only inclined to chase the money, to get rich, to get drunk, to sit on the beach and kick back. And I have to ask the question internally, brothers, why did you serve in the first place? What were you doing if not defending the most innocent and defenseless among us? Those are, who are being destroyed right now on industrial scale in the United States. Child trafficking is just one example. So our choices of what we do with our life, time is precious. It's our most, really, it's our most precious commodity. You can never make more of it. And so what you choose to do with your time, what efforts you make, actions that you take, 
are a result of your character, what you value. So many people sitting on the sidelines, criticizing, talking about whatever, pursuing their own wealth and happiness, callous, uncaring, they don't do anything to help. And they want to criticize the protectors. I just want to encourage you that it's always going to be that way. That's just a, a, a spectrum of humanity. That's, that's how a good portion of, of people are. You'll be persecuted for it. Look at anybody. I challenge you to look at anybody that's actually going and doing good. Anybody that's especially a threat to abusers, to predators, to thieves, to the corrupt that are moving big industries with big power, big money, big influence. Anybody that's a threat to that corruption, stand by. You're going to be smeared. You're going to be discredited because that's really the only way that the opposition can slow down that right fighter's role, that right fighter's war against the corruption and the harm. So it's my, my wife would call it gift with purchase. It comes with the job. Don't expect everybody to be the quality of character that you are and to see your heart and thank you for it. Because, my God, they don't get it. Bless their hearts, a lot of them just don't get it. They'll never understand Here's a technique. I said I'm not here to train you, but here's something that I think is universally applicable no matter what your task. If it involves danger, threat, fear, stress, this technique will help you. And I figured it out at SEAL Team 6, running stress courses. I won't go into great detail, um, but we inoculate ourselves to stress. But there's everything we do, there's challenge. You run through a, a room, I run through a door, there's going to be a guy in a big red man suit to beat you down to the ground and just pummel you unless you defeat him with technique or them. There's smoke, there's CS gas. There's lights, there's no lights, there's opposition. There are tricks, there are puzzles, there are victims, there are booby traps, there are threats. All these things so that it's loud, it's stressful, you're getting beat up, you're running a lot of times with a gas mask, you may have to be running up several sets of uh, flights of stairs, the crash test dummies to drag stuff and then move in. Your heart rate's gonna be screaming. Because that's how it feels when you're faced with a sudden life-and-death confrontation. If you're not inoculated to it, if you're not used to it, boom, heart rate spikes. What happens when your heart rate spikes past a certain rate, the most intelligent portion of your brain shuts off. It quits getting blood flow. You become a caveman, so to speak. You become a, a primal animal and you're capable only of fight, flight, freeze applications. You're problem solving. Like, hey, if this is a movie theater, and we're all in here watching a movie, here's one scenario that happened. 
In this particular movie theater, there were exits on both sides of the screen, as there are in a lot of movie theaters. There was a fire started in the back of the theater, and it moved forward. There were a group of people piled up at one of the exits that died there, tragically. I don't know if the door was jammed or if the person that was so panicked, they just couldn't think, but if you're over here at this door and it's not opening and the fire is coming, in your calm state of mind, you would simply feel scanned. How the heck am I going to get out of here? Look, there's another exit right there. These people could have simply walked out their other exit and gone home to their families that day. But they didn't. They tragically died there. It's terrible. I don't want it to happen. But what do you think their heart, heart rates were? As they're banging on that door trying to run over each other to get out of there, they can't get out. Heart rates screaming. You can't think, you can't solve complex problems, you can't even solve basic problems a lot, in a lot of cases with that. So it's primal, it's how we're wired. If that type of spike heart rate and adrenaline rush, we call it wood hands. <laughs> when you're stressed, of course, you're trying to do something, your hands start getting stiff because it's not getting blood flow. So what your body does physiologically, once your heart rate spikes past that certain level, it shunts off the blood flow to the extremities. And that's why the outer cortex frontal lobe of your brain don't get any blood flow. That's why you get real dumb real quick. Your hands get numb. Your legs don't work right for a while. It can take you know, 20, 30 minutes for you to calm down longer if you're, if you're not actively dealing with it. So what's the technique that I've, I've learned? There's box breathing, there's a lot of things that can work. What I've found to be the most effective, because I, I did it on uh, heart rate monitors, and when I was getting my physicals, they'd say, man, you got a really low resting heart rate, you're a great physical specimen. And I was like, well, thanks. And my ego wanted to make it even better, so I would play with my breathing. So I grew up you know, as a martial arts and fighter. I watched that when it, the longer I exhaled, the more rapidly the heart rate would drop. I wanted to see how low I could get that heart rate. <laughs> and they'd be like, what, are you okay? I'm like, I better. I just wanted to freak them out. Well, that's how I figured out how to play with my rate, my heart rate through my breathing. So if you find yourselves, guys, boom, you're in an emergency, a sudden violent confrontation, threat, or even if you're training and the stress is up, are you going to go on TV and a big live thing? You know, everybody ever met could be watching or whatever. You're like, you feel the heart scream. Just here's the technique of, of developing: breathe in out through your nose, not your mouth, and and extend your exhale as long as you can. Now, if you're under duress, physical exertion, you're going to have to breathe at a certain rate. But the longer you can make that exhale last. the more rapidly the heart rate begins to fall, okay? And as that rate begins to fall, those, those veins, those arteries open back up, and then blood flow returns. And all the lights of the computer start coming back on. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, okay. There's a reason when people say, hey, you know, take a breather, relax, calm down. That's because when you calm yourself, your heart rate calms back down, 
and your cognitive clarity returns. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm not, I'm not here to give training, but that's something that you can use no matter what you've got. Here's a prayer and, te and meditation technique. Some people meditate. Some people pray. Some people do neither. For me, praying was always like on the fly. Talking to God. I don't need an altar. I don't need any special place or technique. But God made me. He obviously hears me. I just talk to him when I need to. But I'll tell you what. This last few months, I've taken... Uh, what I did is I, I got, it was a, a guy that's helping me with my health. It's an IR sauna. And so I, it's one of those cheap ones that you zip up and get into your head, sticks out, and the rest of it just helps your, your body purge a lot of toxins. And there's nothing better for me to do than think and meditate and pray. And I've learned this technique. It's so powerful. The scientists are figuring out a lot of stuff now. And it, it's essentially that there are there are cells in your heart that are brain-type cells. They have their own cognitions, and, and it's capable of a completely different thought than your brain. And it's where your intuition comes from. Your heart will give you a yes or no answer to whether it's something safe or not safe, true or untrue, and your brain's still thinking with, with, with a different process. They're saying if you do this technique, everybody, it, it opens up a channel, a, a communication that your body never gets into otherwise. And it's it's this. When you get into the emotion of gratitude, and they say it's even helpful if you, if you literally touch your heart to remind you to feel with your heart gratitude. And I don't care what you've been through. You can always look around and find somebody that's got it worse. There's a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful to be yep. here today. Yep. I'm thankful for you guys. I could go all day on what I'm thankful for. It's genuine. Yep. When you start giving genuine thanks and you slow your breathing just slightly and you know that you're safe in a safe place and you just concentrate on the feeling of gratitude, they say that the energy that ignites in your body and the, and the gamma wave state that your brain goes into is what a lot of these Tibetan monks and a lot of these gurus, these martial arts experts, the guys that are going in ice cold water for hours or whatever, when they should have been hiked out and dead in 10 minutes, they're in there for two hours or whatever the timing is. People that are achieving extraordinary things cognitively, physically, this is the technique they're using. What do you, why do you think I put my hair like that? That's me probably 19, 18, 19. Why do you think I have my hair like that? Well, Halloween. I never do. A girl. You think I like that? This presentation is a little bit about this. It's bringing a little bit of humanity into this whole aspect of this topic of showing. Um, I have experienced going from that to the highest levels of the military here in the United States to teach your best advice, not only here in the United States, but all across Europe. Uh, some intelligence services in Indonesia, the Ukrainians uh, just sent me a care package and thank you for my training that I provided to them. Um, 
saves a few people. Um, so pretty emotional that in there. Um, and working with communities out there of all types. Um, um, I've trained prostitutes and he wanted to carry around knives with him in case uh, he wanted to be picked up in the Stabbings went up, abductions went down. Strong. <laughs> um, I've uh, shared some of the knowledge of desert survival situations with some of the immigrants coming up into the, into the United States. And I've also trained the war people, which is <laughs> Every now and then, I get asked questions by members of the law enforcement. We've seen this before. Uh, the current thing that's going on right now, there's a there's a guy demoing a uh, it's a uh, to get the range. Sorry, English is my second language. Um, parasol. Umbrella. An umbrella. Sorry, an umbrella with uh, thermal blankets inside of it to cover themselves from uh, thermal energy. There's a bunch of videos online how to make it. That I'm really excited about. We've seen those on the border for years. It's two-sided. You have to have two umbrellas in case you get overlapping views. If you're looking at you have to have two. Um, and the reason why I learned some of these things and the reason why I find myself in situations where people ask this dude about uh, stuff like that is because of where I'm from. The academy that I was a part of was not that. It was, a, it was a prison that wasn't good enough to be a prison. They built this prison in the middle of the hills that had fog in it, like a fog bank, a thick fog bank every now and then, which makes it completely not usable or feasible as a place to hold people. But this police academy is fine. So basically, got taken to a prison for six months. Um, the people in charge of our training were all members of a GAFE. You know what a GAFE is? Grupo Aeromobile de Fuerzas Especiales. The guys that later turned into the Zetas. Those were the guys that were in charge of our training. Um, when we saw them, and part of my, uh, says my French, they told us, you have bread and dick to eat here. Pan y verga. And guess what? We ran out of bread a year ago. There it was. Uh, man, I guess I'm a fucking carnivore now. <laughs> um, I'm standing in this room uh, with a bunch of naked dudes getting searched for tattoos. They're looking for yeah. Tattoo means that they would kick you out. They didn't want anybody to look at the issues. As we went through the training, people started getting pulled out. I'm like, hey, Armando. That was a truck outside. Yeah. You know, the fuck is that guy going on? Armando? Yeah. He was a already owned cartel. He lives guy. But here, he just found out. Oh, cool. I don't like where I live. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. First lesson. The first uh the first situation I found myself in where I was like uh, three days into the job, I was uh stationed. Uh, they were doing this weird operation. We were working with the military. Um, they found a house with a bunch of people in it. They called the military. At this time, the military didn't have arresting powers. So they would use us to be embedded with the military to so arrest people. So I got there and I was like, oh, yeah, fine. 
Walking around, uh, I put a strap of my duffel bag on my G3 rifle. Like, shit. Uh, second, second chance vest that felt like newspaper, you know? Check out the room over there, Ed. And we went into this room that was just covered in weapons. If you ever seen the movie Predators 2, when you go into that room, it's just. People is we just kill grenade launchers and stuff like that. I remember that's the one that I went into, and all of a sudden I'm like, and there's a soldier there with a mask on, looks at me, and I'm looking at him, and he's like, and I'm like. And that was my first fly. <coughs> I walked out of that room with four G3 magazines, uh, two large capacity, like 31 round block magazines. All this experience, all this weird uh, training and uh, going into weird places. This fourth generation warfare university of highest degree. Um, the only thing that I think made me different than a lot of my contemporaries is that I wasn't, uh, I didn't take it personally. Um, I remember performing this trick where you would take a pair of handcuffs and you would take part of the handcuff and bend it sideways and slide it over, making the handcuff look like it's still on, but it isn't. I learned that from a 15-year-old kid named Armando who was the head of the mess cells in Barcelona in Tijuana. I remember demoing that to some of the people that advised for the SEER program in the US. They had never seen that shit before. They looked at it and they're like, holy shit. Moses. Man, that's a big one. It's a pretty cool trick. Pretty cool trick. Well, um, the difference between a lot of those guys that were my contemporaries and me is that I didn't make the mistake of dehumanizing that enemy. Which is a distinctly lot of snake. And it's not, it's a purposeful, it's a purposeful thing that some people in charge will use. I'm, I'm sure all of us have heard the derogatory terms for enemies during all of your US conflicts, right? Even the Iranians were like teaching you know, you know, everybody has a word for the enemy. Um, but it's an interesting aspect of whatever the concept of an enemy is to you. Whatever that is, whatever it is to you. As soon as you make the mistake of dehumanizing that enemy, or turning, turning him into an anthropomorphized monster of the sort, you become blind to his capabilities. And you, and you become deaf. Can't see, can't hear, can't hear the capabilities. Um, I never made the mistake of dehumanizing. Uh, I wrote Catholic. My mom was very influential in my life, and she had uh, one piece of advice when I graduated the academy. Nobody's against you, therefore, themselves. So don't take anything personal. First rule. My dad told me something else. Never let anybody own you. And those two just kept me alive. Uh, this is a place where people will be corrupted constantly. You know, every time I say, hey, you're a cop in Mexico? Yeah, you're on the fucking dick. 
well, we'll talk about that if I you know, wasn't the hate or not. You know, I've been to some places where if I was, I couldn't access it. Talk about that in a bit. Um, but it was a bad place. But the humanity aspect of it, the ability to communicate with people like that. My war was a very different war. And I've met people that have gone through different war fears, specifically some of your elite war fighters here in the US, fucking amazing people. Um, but realistically, they have never had to fight their own in a way like I did. The people that I fought and shot were Spanish speaking, grew up in my own communities. Um, they would, sometimes there was a burial of some of them next to one of some of ours. So we would be set off in a way because we better be prepared. And uh, I found this quote as I was going through the first parts of my therapy. So that's another thing that doesn't exist in Mexico therapy. And also, a lot of people don't like to talk about this aspect of doing things in places. Why? I don't know. Some people find it pretty personal, some people don't want to share it, some people think that we treat differently. Mental stuff in different places gets treated differently and talked about differently. Um, and it's an aspect that doesn't get talked about before things happen. Usually, it's something that gets talked about after things happen. I learned about TBI. PTSD and all of this weird stuff when I came to the United States. Um, I was uh, I was taken in by a Navy SEAL named Tracker Dan. I don't know if you know who that is. Dan Sashfield was uh, he's, a, he's still an active Navy SEAL reservist. Um, we knew each other quite when I was active. We had to leave quickly because it was like a quick exit. Uh, he took me in. Uh, he not only took me in, he um, taught me what it is to be like an American. Uh, just about the whole thing, you know? I didn't know any of that. In my mind, I, I, I never crossed my mind to my way to the United States. I like Mexico. Tacos are great. Food's great down there, you know? We actually have weird, dangerous freedom. You know? And I always put danger before the freedom part because it's dangerous as shit. The UI will cost you 50 bucks. You know? It's a pretty cool place. <laughs> Um, but I never imagined just leaving them. And all of a sudden, I found myself just, uh, you know, seeing that movie Castaway. I found myself like Tom Hanks in the middle of the crossroads, just, what the fuck do I do with this shit now? Yeah. Um, no money in my pocket. Uh, a few dollars in a bank account somewhere. Um, a three-year-old daughter. In my arms. Um, a bunch of issues and a shit ton of experience that I didn't know was happening. I just didn't know. Um, somebody showed me this quote during my therapy. Enlightenment is a destructive process. It has nothing to do with becoming better or being happier. Enlightenment is the crumbling away of untruth. It's seeing through the facade of pretense. It's the complete eradication of everything you imagine to be true. And that's something you get when you get punched in the face. Yeah. That's something you get when you square up with a jujitsu dude and he tries to go to your legs and you just take out a pen and stick it right into his ear. And you never saw that coming. That's an interesting aspect that you learn, you know. You can do any trick once. Yeah. Anything's out of all once. Also, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm originally from Afghanistan. I was born there in 78. The Russians uh, had invaded Afghanistan back then, and a lot of Afghans were leaving. My family was one of those families that were like, we gotta get out of here. We just don't know where to go. Um, fortunately, I had a, one of my, my oldest uncle, actually, he was a foreign exchange student in Omaha, Nebraska. He was already here uh, going to school and everything. So when my family decided to leave, it wasn't because um, had the Russians had invaded, right? Like if some country invaded the US, we're not just gonna pick up and leave. But those are different times, and it was different for a lot of people and how they wanted to handle that situation. Some people stayed, and some people left. My family decided to leave. I had no say in that, I was three years old. <laughs> But I often think about how my life would have ended up if I had stayed in Afghanistan. You know, who would I have become? Who would I have been? It's this America that we have grown up in is not the same America that we live in today. When I grew up in the 80s, and I would come home and go to, uh, come home from school, grab a quick bite, and go outside and play with my friends, I wouldn't be home till sunset. And that's probably the case for most of you. Because we lived in safer neighborhoods, this wasn't, it wasn't today's America, it was a different America. And I was very fortunate. Um, but again, that thought in the back of my head was always that sense of gratitude, of being able to come to this country with open arms, being welcomed, you know, it doesn't matter where we're from or who we are, or, you know, what our race is or ethnicity, we were welcomed with open arms. And we were given an opportunity to have good lives here and make something of ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, from an early age, I had a, a very, I had a lot of um, gratitude for this country. And so, growing up, I knew that I wanted to do something to pay back. I wanted to do something. I didn't know what that was. Um, you know, but as I go, as I got older and everything, and I kind of started learning more about, you know, the conflict in Afghanistan and all that, I decided that, you know, serving the military here in America would be the best way to pay that back. You know, the best way to say thank you. So I remember my very first firefight. I'll try to keep this short. My very first firefight, we got ambushed. 300 Republican Guard on this burn. We're in these Amtrak vehicles. They're like amphibious assault vehicles, but we're just packed in there like sardines and it's hot. All I hear is like, tink, 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 like just rounds hitting the outside of these vehicles, right? And we weren't even allowed to put magazines in our guns. That's what they said, no magazines in your guns. I was like, we're at war, bro, like what are you talking about? No magazines in your guns. Because again, this is a garrison mindset, right? Think about it. These people haven't been at war for like 20 years. So we're there in this garrison mindset. It took us very, I mean, we changed that very quickly. We went to like magazines and the weapons all the time, all the time, right? All weapons. But imagine sitting in Kuwait, no, no mags in your weapons. Cross the line into Iraq, no mags in your weapons. So the ambush happens. <laughs> that was the first time we put a mags in our weapons. When we were getting shot at. I'm sitting there, I'm trying to put my magazine in my weapon, and I'm just, my hands are shaking. I'm just like, I can't get this magazine in this, in this gun. My hands are shaking. It took for my buddy to grab my hand, look at me, and say, Powell, take a breath. Take a breath. Everything's okay, take a breath. 
So I did. I took a couple breaths. I got my mag and my weapon. Sent that bolt forward. Next thing I knew, the ramp was coming down. And all I see is Iraqis on top of this bird just shooting everything they had, RPGs and PKMs and AKs. And I was like, oh my god, bro, this looks just like a movie set. You know? This is crazy. Am I really here right now? Uh, I remember how scared I was. It was very scary. Uh, everything was in slow motion. Everything was like, the, the sounds were muffled, right? And I, I kept hearing these little snaps, like this. Like, what, what is going on, man? What is that? Right? And I see these little clouds of dust, like, hitting the ground or whatever, or just, you know, kind of exploding off the ground. I'm like, what is, what is that? <laughs> we just realized that this is the first time I've been on the receiving end of getting shot at. Everything else was us sending, sending it down range. So we never knew what it felt like. The rounds whizzing past her head, the rounds hitting the ground, everything in slow motion, sounds muffled. It was, a, it was a day I'll never forget, but it's also a day that I refer back to when I think about how stressful some of this training can be, how stressful some of this, these skill sets can be, right? And if you think about it, there are environmental stress, there is environmental uh, conditions of stress. There's the, the, the external factors. But also, with, with the lack of experience comes a lot of self-induced stress. What we feel is we cause that to ourselves. That comes from within. Maybe it's just due to lack of experience or due to lack of confidence or lack of your capability and, and set, uh, uh, skill set. But a lot of it comes from within. And the more you put yourself in that environment, the more you submerse yourself in that kind of stressful uh, environment conditions, the more you start to become a little immune, or what should I say? The more you become kind of... Um, so guys, give me a word here. Help Resilient. Me say that again? Resilient. Resilient, good word. I know what I like to do. I like teaching that stuff, and I like teaching the urban warfare stuff, and I love teaching CQB, but CQB is like my bread and butter. That's what I really enjoy. It makes sense to me, and I know how to articulate it. And CQB is important because with every skill set that you guys have, or that every skill set that you guys are, are pursuing, they all kind of go hand in hand, do they not? Right? Like pistols, we want to learn how to get better with pistols. Okay, cool. But if we're going to shoot pistols, then we might as well learn how to shoot rifle. And if we're going to start, start shooting rifles, then we should probably learn how to uh, start shooting, or start uh, learning a little bit of something about shotguns. Right? And if we're going to learn all these weapons platforms, then we should start learning a little bit about gear. And then gear goes from, once we get our gear, we understand that, okay, well, I can't do all this by myself. I need teammates. Now we got to look for people like-minded that, that have that same kind of drive that we have, and they want to train, and they want to live this life. Right? Because this isn't a hobby. You guys aren't here for an experience. I mean, you are. But it's not like the same as like going to Disney World. Right? That's a different experience. We go to Disney World, we have fun, we stress out, we're like, oh, these prices, and then we go home and we're like, oh, eating ramen noodles for the next month to make up. <laughs> but this is a different kind of experience. This is, obviously you're here getting some amazing instruction and knowledge from all these great guys who I'm honored to be here with. And, and so that's one way. 
But what you're really doing is this is just another chapter in your journey in this lifestyle that you guys are living, correct? Now you guys can be here because maybe it's part of your job or maybe it's part of, maybe it's just something you want to do personally that's a passion of yours. That's great, I don't care why you're here. I don't care. Because even if this is part of your job, it's not like you, when you clock out and you go home, you don't turn this off, do you? Does it turn off? No. So whether it's part of your profession or whether it's personal for you, it doesn't matter because we never turn this off. It always stays on. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Always stay ready. Except we don't just teach firearms. We don't just teach tactics. Because if you're willing to invest all this time into training how to protect people, how to possibly take a life, then you should give equal amount of time to learning how to save a life. We teach medicine, we teach stop the bleed, we teach a lot of kind of tra trauma level courses that helps people understand the other side of things. Because just like overseas, when we shot a bad guy and we didn't, we failed to kill him, guess what we had to do then? We had to treat him. What are the, what are the normal kind of actions that happen at a movie theater? Just, just name some stuff. Right, we, we go there, we buy popcorn, we wait in line to get tickets, uh, we're moving to the actual theater that we're in, right? So if you think about it, each one of these places that you guys go to has its own culture. A gas station, a movie theater, a mall, a restaurant. Once you identify the culture of that environment, and you understand the normalities of the environment, then when something is abnormal, it should get your attention. But that's just part of it, right? Understanding the culture of the environment, the normalities, so that when an abnormality happens, it immediately gets your attention. That's one part of it. The other part of it is just being aware and not being buried in your phone and not being so engulfed in a conversation with your kids or your girlfriend or whoever that you're oblivious to your surroundings. I did tell Byron thank you for uh, not putting me after lunch, because that's a rough crowd, guys. That's a crowd. I've only done one other major public speaking event, and I was scared shitless. And the guy's like, prepare a speech, get this ready, look over your, your material, memorize some stuff. And I was like, nah, I'll show up in the morning, get it. <laughs> and so it, it went really well, and I'm excited uh, to do this and present the idea in, in conversation while I was driving here with my buddy Dan was, if I can try and teach you guys just with words what the program is, because the program is simple. It's supposed to be simple. It's simple to the point where you guys can do it, my kids do it, my fiance does it, everybody does it. It has to be that simple. Everything from just pushing somebody away or using a frame, or there's plenty of names for things and how things have evolved, but the program needs to be simple so that you can actually walk away today and be like, hey, here we go. I can do this, right? And a lot of it is space management. If you guys have trained something uh, or some art, you understand space management, especially when tools are involved, right? All those people you saw in those videos, when they came to the class, we do a quick show of hands, and two, maybe three people out of the 14 per day have some sort of experience. That's it. And that's the result that we're getting. People are able to defend their equipment, they're able to take it back if it, is, if it does get taken away. 
And so a lot of it is, is this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna launch it here uh, as, as a thank you to you and say welcome to the growth of the program. There's a lot of stuff we need to break down, uh, break through in order for this program to make sense. And it happens every class, and every class is unique. And even if you came to one class, it wouldn't be the same the next class, because now you know more. And that's, that's another funny thing about experience is like once you get it, there's no going back. Now you have more information, so you can only go forward now. No more excuses, right? If you take this class and you're like, man, I was gassed. So now you know. Don't be gassed next time. Better cardio. Right? Work out a little bit more. Uh, and that's the formula, right? Fitness is the number one formula for this. Then your hand-to-hand -hand skills, because you're not always going to have tools, but you can find a way to get to tools, right? Then it's your tools. It's your short-range tools. Then it's your longer-range tools. Then, like uh, Bayern was saying, then you have your vehicles, or like uh, Rick was saying, not even your vehicles as tools too, right? 2,000 pound bullets running people over. So like I said, we, we all train and drill the program material, but little things like when I'm in the car with my wife or fiance, same thing, right? We're, we're destined to be together. <laughs> um, when we're in the car at a gas station, this is just what we do. If I get out of the car and she's in the car with the kids, she jumps over to the driver's side seat. So now somebody's in command of the car. She's in command of the lock, she's in command of the vehicle, she can take off and I can handle business. All this is all in play, right? Anywhere we go, that's a transitional space. But it started from a fun conversation. Because you can't be like, hey, we get assaulted, <laughs> right? She's like, no, no, let's not have this conversation, right? Um, those are the examples that I'm saying that it helps bring into the family so that it becomes a unit thing, right? Not like tier one units, but like the unit that you live with now, the people that matter the most now, right? It's such a niche thing, this specific gun grappling, gun fighting, humans tussling over a gun that I have to say a few things before we even get to that, right? How did you get, and these are just questions, right, that we should all ponder, how and what did I do to get where I am right now, where some dude is grabbing my gun that's in my hands, right? Think about that. What did I do <laughs> until this moment? And why I ask these questions, and I ask them to myself too, like, hey, when we're doing this new drill, does this drill live in reality? How did we get here? How did this drill evolve <laughs> to where four hands are on one gun and then we're going, right? Like a lot of shit has to go wrong. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Horribly, right? Like, all the things the guys covered earlier, situational awareness, everything is out of the window, and now we're wrestling over again. Whether it's yours or somebody else's, right? The whole program is designed to allow you to recover your gun if it's lost, keep your gun if somebody tries to take it, and live somewhere in both of those worlds so that you aren't the one on the receiving end of that muzzle, right? If you're on the range on firing line and you're shooting, Somebody gets a click no bang, how do they typically react? A little erratic, right? They either look at it, they don't know what they're doing, or they tap right really aggressively, they move and they do all this shit, right? So it's very erratic in nature. Clearing malfunctions looks funny. Uh, and so the idea then, and this is again, it's, it's freeing your mind so that you can actually do what needs to be done in the sense of controlling a human, which is violence. I get it's by any means, right? The gun, a blade, whatever. But I need you to free yourself of being in danger of 
the stuff that's in the gun, the ammo in the gun. So now what's the process, right? We're in this tussle, I cook the one round off, I close the whole gun so that you can't fire it. I get the gun taken away from me for a split second. If they don't know how to do anything with the gun, what do you think happens? They think they're in a more powerful position because they have the weapon. But, sure. but they're, they're actually at a disadvantage because they think they have a tool that they can use that they can't use. Where do their hands usually go? So they're not protecting their face, right? Right. And maybe it's still a shit show because they have the gun in their possession. We're going to get it back, though, right? That's that's the that's part of this. But if the gun does travel into somebody else's hands after I cook that malfunction into the gun, again, it's allowing yourself to free your mind of the traditional style because now you're not shooting in a traditional setting anyway, right? You're not shooting and letting the gun cycle where it's supposed to cycle. You are now fighting in a space that the gun doesn't want to be in. That's why there's malfunctions in these things. That's why you have to understand malfunctions. Uh, here's a fun way to clear malfunctions. We'll just sidetrack real quick. Uh, with your buddies, right? Obviously, don't flag or sweep anybody, but have them be on your back, their hands just kind of like reaching towards your wrists or elbows, not the gun itself, right? And try to clear malfunctions while somebody's trying to slap a gun, or even use a stick, whatever, and get do malfunctions when somebody's trying to take a gun from you, right? Because that's what you're gonna have to do in, in these scrambles. That's what we see when you have to clear the gun. You have to either do a double feed clearance, right? Or a tap rack. Uh, and you have to do it while somebody's trying to take the gun from you, which is the fun part of the drill, right? Like, fuck, I wanna shoot this dude but I gotta get this gun clear. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't, right? You just end up in a fight. Um, but it's a 50-50 chance if the other person knows what to do with the gun. This is a, that was that earlier question we we're talking about, right? It's a 50-50 chance, but it does, what does the gun require for the most part, right? You can go off belts, shoes, and rack the slide. Where do people usually, what do people usually do to clear a gun? I'll malfunction out of it. Two hands, right? So again, two hands are busy, which means they're not protecting themselves, they're not doing anything else. We have now more time to do certain things, right? Better violence. Who's been in training or in real life, it doesn't matter because experiences will change anyway. Who's looked on the barrel of a gun before? On the flip side, right? What was your initial reaction? Anybody that just wants to share. Oh, yeah. 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 Did you feel like this, like all your muscles kind of like brace for impact for something that you can't brace for impact for? <laughs> that shit just kind of rips right through, right? Yeah. It's a very tricky thing, and it, it's it's look, it, it's unique that we can train like this and experience things like this before they have to happen for real. God forbid that they even have to happen. They don't have to happen. Right? If we can be aware of things, if we can get ourselves out of situations, we don't ever have to be in these uh, scenarios, right? Um, but it's better to, and this is what's really cool about the personalities that show up to things like this, especially our class, is it drives a certain personality that's like curious, to kind of like, oh shit, let's do it, but I don't know, right? So every class I have at least one call, one person that does a no call, no show. And then I'll follow up and they'll be like, nope, I didn't think it was for me, so I bailed that day. I was like, man, come out next time, <laughs> right? Let's get it in. Um, but it does draw a very unique personality because it exposes you to a level of no return. Now you know either I'm capable of this or I'm not, 
And that answering that question for yourself is what we're after. Because then you'll know. You'll know if it's something you even want to teach. If the, some people put their guns away. Like, I'm not going to carry a gun. I'm just going to carry a knife now. Because I don't want to ever have to do this shit. Right? It doesn't change for everybody, but people do have uh, relevations based on experiences with certain things, right? So those pits that you just saw, here's the problem with training in pits, is when you get back out on the road, back home, you want a pit. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, that's the first thing that comes to your mind when somebody's pissing you off is, I know how to do this. <laughs> what would be the ramifications? <laughs> um, so that's the problem with teaching. Why would we teach that? A lot of people ask that. Why do you teach a pit during the driving course? Is that a little bit extreme? Is that a law enforcement move? Absolutely a law enforcement move. We've seen it on uh, KTLA numerous times from that overhead cam. You know, daily I get those seats. are awesome. Uh, okay, so why do we need these? Well, my background, uh, the easiest way to say it is for the last 30 years I've been traveling to higher risk environments. I tend to not work in the States. I've done three details my entire life in the United States. Everything else has been outside. My first detail ever was in 1994 in Bosnia. And after that, did the Iraq thing. Colombia, Lebanon, Mexico for two years straight. We're still running in Mexico. I just got back about a week ago from the detail down there. Colombia, Brazil, uh, pretty much everywhere. Took a documentary film crew to Syria last year. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was at war last year, and now it's just starting up again right now. Any of you Armenians in here know what I'm talking about? Um, so I go to places that are a little bit extreme. Well, what does that mean to you if you're driving uh, a client in San Francisco or Los Angeles? Quite often we hear, you don't need all that. Here's why you do. First off, if your goal is to be a protector in this industry, you are paid to protect. If you don't have these hard skills in your back pocket and you get that worst day at the office, you're stuck. You have no tools to pull out. This is why you have to have these hard skills at a higher level. So this is why we go with pit. Overseas, and many of you have probably driven overseas, know that the driving is much more aggressive. Aggressive in that, they're gonna be driving much closer to you, but somehow not hitting you. The kidnap tactics that many use in Nigeria, in Mexico, many other places in the world, is a blocking tactic. All those videos you see of these individuals getting blocked in and then taken, just would have accelerated and hit that car in front of them and are right in the right place, they would have gone right through. They just don't know that. So we don't exactly expect you to pit when you're out on the road, even though you will have that uh, desire to. But we want you to be unafraid of contact. We want you to understand what happens with the dynamics of the vehicle when you're pushing somebody and when somebody's pushing you. Because it is a tactic in many places that we work that they will try to ram you off the road. In Mexico, for example, 70% of all kidnappings originate from law enforcement. They know how to pit. Those of you who work down there, who have worked down there, who have, have done threat assessment packages down there, know what I'm talking about. So you're working with individuals that know how to do these things. So whether you're actually doing a pit or not, what you're comfortable with now after going through these packages is contact with other vehicles and what happens to your vehicle and their vehicle when this happens. And now being able to control it. That is the biggest thing for us. Can you make contact? 
things maybe didn't work out exactly like you want, you got thrown off kilter a little bit, can you keep contact with or con uh, control of your vehicle? That's really what we're training you to do. So those of you who are going out to our, uh, our driving training that we have coming up tomorrow and the next day, don't go home and start pitting people. You're going to tell them Rick told you to. No, Rick didn't tell you to. Don't pit people. Now, did anybody see that recent video in Manhattan? The bad guys. What did those bad guys do to stop their victim? They pitted them. And it wasn't an accident. Twice. They pitted them once, and you're thinking, well, maybe that was just luck. No. They set it up perfectly the second time and pitted them again. People are starting to figure out that this is how you stop a vehicle. Again, thanks KTLA. Um, it's not a very difficult task to perform, uh, but it's an important task if you're going to be in the security field. You guys have seen the South African armored car driver. They came under fire. How did they get out of that? They rammed through the bad guy vehicle. They aimed at the bad guy vehicles. When you're driving in a security function in a high-risk area, do you think you're going to do what they do in the movies and be shooting out the windows? Negative. The only weapon you will likely have is your vehicle. That is how that South African driver and his partner got out of that, is they aimed for the bad guy vehicles. Santiago, Chile. Videos have been coming out this year of carjackings and robbings. I know some of you have seen them. You know how they got out of them? They rammed through. People that live in these environments have started to figure out, you know what? Let's not stop. Let's ram through. But what have we all been taught since we were 16 years old? Don't hit a car. So it's conditioned into us. When we do ramming drills, when we do pit, counter pit, when we do all these drills, that goes away. That is why we do contact driving. I know I only have a short time here, so I'll just sum up by saying what our driving training is compared to some of the other major schools out there. All good training programs. But when you're talking about a security driving program, you can't stop short. I'm going to go over and see that dog. I already know it. i got, I got to see what it is. <laughs> got to see what it is now. Um, okay. Um, if you know me, you know that every, uh, every place I ever work, I'm always rescuing dogs. I'm in Syria rescuing dogs. I'm in Nagorno-Karabakh with shells come down rescuing dogs. I'm in Mexico rescuing dogs. You know, I can't help it. I'll wait till my shift is done. I go back out and I rescue the dogs that need help. Yeah. So I'm going to see what this guy's doing over here. Uh, where was I? Oh, our driving program. So, most driving programs out there, what you'll, see, what you'll get is a good solid dynamics program. What that means is they will teach you to control that vehicle to its maximum capability. I think Tony Scotty put out years ago, 80% of that vehicle you should be able to master. Most people can't do that unless they've had the proper training. You need to know exactly what that vehicle is going to do when you input something to that vehicle at what speed, the brakes, the steering wheel. You need to know exactly what's going to happen, what that weight shift is going to do. You have to understand this part. It's crucial to any program. Ours as well. So we go through that dynamics portion. Most will stop there. We do not stop there. If you're going to be a security driver, do you not need to know how to protect that limo? For those of you who don't know, the limo is the vehicle your principal will be riding in. You need to know how to protect that limo with your support vehicles. If you don't know how to do that, are you really in a security driving program? Not a PowerPoint, not a two-minute demo in a parking lot. Practice over, over, over again from different positions of that vehicle. Sometimes you're in the chase vehicle, sometimes you're in the limo, sometimes you're in the communicator spot, right front seat. All 
all these different positions over and over and over again. Now you're learning how to use those two vehicles together and how to communicate between the two. Another big gap I've seen in other schools, they don't communicate vehicle to vehicle. You're a security driving team. How can you not be communicating between vehicles in the proper, concise way? You have to be. And it's not just a PowerPoint briefing. It's repetition over and over and over again with different scenarios being thrown at you. And then finally, as we already spoke about, so I don't need to drill it down, um, is the contact right. Get used to that. Now, we like to say it's dumb and, the dumb and dumber theory. It might be a one in a million chance that you'll have to make contact with another vehicle on detail. But you're saying there's a chance. Right? <laughs> so that's why we call it the dumb and dumber theory. Boom, quick shout out to our sponsor, Staccato. My first pistol sponsor. Um, I've been sponsored by a lot of companies, right, over the years, but when it comes to pistol, that's my bread and butter. Pistol is something I believe in. You know, I'm a competitive shooter. You know, we're shooting anywhere from, you know, 800 rounds a month type of thing, right? So Staccato, being what I believe, is one of, if not the most complete handguns you can put in your hand. Um, it's got every component that a handgun could have, should have. Uh, they're actually extremely dependable now that they've made some changes. And these things are straight up tack drivers. If you're looking for a pistol that will do as much of the work for you as a piece of hardware can, obviously you have to have the, the, the marksmanship and all the different things, but different guns perform at different levels. And I want to say that Staccato is one of by far, for sure, take it from a competitive shooter, we're shooting the highest volumes of rounds constantly right now, not used to have a background guy, but like right now, when you go shoot, you're gonna see certain brands. Staccato is one of, if not the highest performing firearm that is both CCW, duty ready, and also competitive ready. So I wanna give them a shout out if you guys are looking for a good handgun to build your skills on top of, go check out Staccato, much love and respect. Boom. Yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I want to encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. Uh, you'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, that helps, that helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast out.